The sermon title I've given this Sunday morning's sermon is Christians are to look upon one another with mercy. Christians are to look upon one another with mercies, uh, with mercy. Uh, if you've been tracking along with us uh, so far uh, in the book of James, he's pulled no punches. Uh, if you remember the first study in the book of James, uh, the topic there was trials. Uh, then he goes straight from trials to temptation. And then last week, if you were here, it was repentance. Uh, and so he's, he's very focused on uh, some of the things that impact us on a regular basis as believers, as those who are in God's kingdom, who are following hard after Jesus, uh, the things we can expect and how we're supposed to respond to these things uh, that are hard things, uh, things that <laughs> require us dying to ourselves with regard to our own way of doing things, our own way of viewing things. And before he deals with us in relationship to one another, uh, he deals with us in relationship to us, <laughs> with, with the trials, with the temptations, and with the need for us to repent. And only after he's discussed those things does he bring this topic. So he's already brought you through trials. He's already brought you through temptations. He's already brought you through your own examination of your own life in light of God's word. And now, after all of that, now we can address how we view one another. Because you know what? If you've been through a few trials, if you've been through some tough tem temptations, if you've had to repent and repent and examine God's word and repent, you're in, in the right place to view other believers uh, with the right kind of mindset. And yet he assumes, uh, and probably safely so, that we don't start off that way having the right mindset or viewing one another correctly. Notice how he begins uh, with telling us how not to do it. Christians are not to engage in favoritism and partiality. Notice there in verses one through four, what he says again, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. Uh, again, one of those commandments that he brings right away, do not hold the faith with partiality. That word partiality is kind of an interesting word. It means to look up to. And it originally, when it was first coined, the word, it was in a good way. Like somebody was really good at something and you would look up to them. And then it turned into this uh, putting people up on a pedestal that they shouldn't be on and showing them more favor than we ought to show. And so it, it, it became what we would, um, in the same way we say favoritism has bad connotations to the word and partiality has bad connotations to the word. He's, he's saying the same thing here. And he's saying with regard to how you live your life as a believer, holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, how you hold that is to be without partiality or without showing any kind of favoritism. Uh, we are not to do it because God does not do it. Uh, we're told in scripture in Acts chapter 10, uh, if you recall when Peter was first uh, understanding that God was going to take the gospel, not just to the Jewish world, but to the Gentile world as well. And God sent a blanket down and he's like, you know, kill and eat. And it's all this unclean food. And he's like, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. The, the Lord was teaching him. And this is uh, Peter's summary of it. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, uh, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And this was after he shared the gospel, kind of unwillingly, uh, with a bunch of Gentile 
people and they've received the gospel, the spirit fell upon them. And he's like, I think I get it now. Uh, the ground at the cross is all level. Uh, the Jews are not closer than the Gentiles are. And that's when he, he had that understanding that with God, there is no partiality. There's, God doesn't have favorites. Uh, and so likewise, God doesn't want his children to have favorites uh, within the body of Christ. And that's what James is addressing specifically. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, says it very succinctly. He says, there is no partiality with God. Uh, if you think you're God's favorite, uh, yes, but only to the degree that we're all his favorite. <laughs> right? We're, we're, we are God's beloved. That's how he described us, describes us in relationship to him. We're his children. Um, but there's not one child that's favored above another. Um, we are all equally accepted. Uh, there's not one of us that's closer to God than the other one is. Again, the ground at the cross is level. He explains why we're not to do this, as if uh, just the prohibition is, seems obvious, but he, he explains the result. If, when, if and when Christians engage in showing partiality, especially within the church, uh, he summarizes the, the reason why that's not good there at the end of verse 4. He says, you become judges with evil hearts. Uh, I'm not sure if you would ever want to go in a courtroom situation where the judge had an evil heart. <laughs> Uh, only once in scripture is that actually used as a positive illustration where a woman is trying to get her case heard and is like annoying the judge into giving her justice. Uh, that's a, a judge with an evil heart. Um, but evil-hearted judges are terrible at giving out justice because there's evil in their heart. And scripture tells us when we're viewing one another uh, from a fallen worldly perspective, when we favor one above another uh, for whatever the reason is, uh, whether we admire their spiritual walk or we admire their Rolex watch, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever that favoritism is, uh, it is supposed to be without us. Later on in verse 9, he will say, uh, when you show partiality, you sin. Uh, he doesn't mince his words. I like James's clarity with regard to these things. But notice that he's not talking to unbelievers in the church or unbelievers outside of the church. Uh, this command is given to, notice how verse 1 starts again, my brethren. Uh, and he doesn't lay off on that. Uh, he's, he describes it later uh, in his illustration of somebody coming into your assembly. We would call that a church, a church gathering. The word there is synagogue uh, for the assembly there. Uh, and then note the re repetition of the word you in his illustration. Uh, he says, you pay attention, you say to him, you say to the poor, and have you not shown partiality among yourselves? James here is not prohibiting this kind of behavior outside of the church with people who aren't attending the church. That's not who he has in mind. Uh, this command for in his mind, if he was here today, would be for everybody within the four walls here. He's not looking to change the heart of the world around us. He's trying to change our hearts <laughs> in relationship to one another and how we view one another. And so his, his focus is on us and on our hearts and, and how we are viewing one another. And that partiality and that favoritism, it clouds our judgments. And uh, he gives the example, right? It's a, a fairly straightforward example. Uh, it would be a Sunday morning favoritism. If, if somebody who came in was 
uh, you know, a celebrity or uh, extravagantly wealthy, and we treated them uh, above and beyond, like, oh, you can have the best seat, um, they can come in late, and we'll stop the service, and we'll restart it, and we'll, you know, we'll, all of this accommodation for this person. And then this other person who has nothing that they could give to us, we, we view them that way, they're, they're poor, and we're like, uh, you can sit at my feet. Uh, you can stand in the back over here. We're, we're like zero care, zero accommodation. But what they're doing is they're judging from, from the outside and they're valuing according to the values of this world. And again, the reason why we're not supposed to do this is because we would become evil judges. Judges with evil thoughts. Uh, Sermon on the Mount reference, if you're tracking along with us, my regular exhortation for us as we go through the book of James is to read the next section ahead, the next read ahead, and then read through the Sermon on the Mount and see if you can pick out where the connections are. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. This is one of the most favorite verses of all of the unsaved people I've ever met. <laughs> and it's, it's basically, let me do what I want. Judge not, lest you be not judged. And that's not what he's talking about. Um, but what he is talking about is the posture of our heart and then taking God's place. God is the judge. And he would go on later and saying the judgment with which we use against others is going to be used against us. And so if we have like, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, or you could be doing better here, you could be doing better here, you could be doing better here, that same judgment is going to be measured back against us. When we put ourselves in God's place, uh, we don't even meet our own standards, let alone meeting God's. Uh, and, and the problem is, is because only God can judge righteously because only God can see the heart. Uh, you remember when God was selecting the second king in Israel? Uh, Saul had been king. God rejected Saul from being king. He sent Samuel out. He's like, I'm going to pick a man after my own heart. Uh, go to the house of Jesse. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. And the first oldest son he sees, he's like, surely the Lord's anointed. He's like head and shoulders tall. He's like you know, ripped. He's like, this is a king. I can tell because I can see with my eyes that this man is kingly. And... Uh, you know, Jesse, the father, he brought his firstborn in first. He's like, of all my kids, this is the one for sure. And, you know, they went through six sons that all were there and none of them were chosen. And the father didn't even bring in the last one. He's just like, he's just out in the field. It's like, maybe in top six for sure. Uh, but David, for sure, he's not the one. He can just be outside watching the sheep. <laughs> so even from his father's perspective, uh, evaluating all of his sons, certainly not the one. Uh, and when Samuel saw and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed, uh, the Lord spoke to Samuel on that moment. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's essentially why we can't judge one another with regard to how God is going to meet out righteous judgment, because he doesn't look at what's going on on the outside. He actually sees what's going on on the inside. And as together as David's older brother was, he was already rejected by the Lord. He's, he had refused him. And David, who is still tending out cheap, he's like, that was the Lord's anointed. 
how God sees things is not how we see things. God's ability to see things as they are is different than our own. And when we value people according to the way the world values people, we are valuing them incorrectly. The contrast, uh, it grows. Notice what he says in verses 5 through 7. God's view of his people stands in contrast to the standards of this world. God's view of his people stands in contrast to the standards of this world. Uh, His second command that he's giving to us here is in verse 5. He says, listen, uh, my parents never said that word unless they thought my mind might be wandering off to somebody else (laughs) doing something else. Uh, And so he, he really, like he's given us this illustration and you're like, okay, that's, that's pretty ridiculous over the top partiality favoritism. Certainly that's not here. And certainly that's not me. And now James is saying, listen, (laughs) I know your mind is wandering. Like you're, you're thinking about the person who should be here right now. And I'm talking to you. Listen, my beloved brethren. Again, he's not telling us this because he hates us. <laughs> he's telling us this because we're, his, we're God's kids. We're, we're beloved and we're brothers. Now he's going to give us God's perspective of the poor. In contrast to fallen man's choice, God chooses the poor. Notice there again in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He's asking a rhetorical question to make us think about God's choices. Uh, The question again is, has not God chosen the poor? The answer is yes, God has chosen the poor. Uh, And this is in contrast to the illustration he just gave, right? You have people choosing the rich. (laughs) And... Fallen people will always choose those who can add value to themselves and reject those who will only cost them something. And that that stands in contrast to what God does. Uh, Interesting side note, uh, up until this point, the word rich has not been used. And the first time the word rich is used is in relationship to the poor. Notice what he says there again. Uh, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich? Uh, The other guy just had gold rings. (laughs) Fine apparel. Uh, but has not been described as rich. And rich in the best kind of way, rich in faith, rich in a trust and confidence in God to be and to do for him all that God desires to be and to do for him. They're rich in faith because they know the promises of God. They are rich in faith uh, because they hold on to the promises. uh, And they hold on to the promises because God has made the promises to them. Right? That's what he says there about uh, the promise, heirs of the kingdom, which he promised. Uh, but notice uh, the, the requirement to receive the promise isn't physical poverty. He doesn't say to those who are physically poor at the end. Right? What does he say there at the end of the question in verse 5? Which he has promised to those who love him. Those whose heart's affection are for him. Uh, and it's, it's easy to love the Lord when... The Lord is all you have. (laughs) Uh, It's easy to be distracted from loving the Lord when you've got a lot of shiny objects. Uh, In the parable of the sower and the seed, uh, Jesus describes four seeds that are uh, cast out. You know, one that was on hard ground, it got eaten right away. One that was on Calaveras ground, you know, the rocky ground, went in, 
sprung up, it died. Um, third one, grew up amongst the weeds. And it's the one amongst the weeds that it, it doesn't die, but it doesn't bear fruit. And when Jesus interprets that part of the parable, it's the one that grows up and is not overcome by the hard things in life, the, the sun that comes and burns the one with no root, it has a root. It's, in the, it's rooted with weeds, though, and those weeds are described as the good things in life, the desire for other things, the pursuit of pleasure and money, and not necessarily bad things, but unimportant in compared to the things of God. And it's, it's not how we handle the hard things sometimes that will define us, but it's how we handle the good things. If those good things don't overcome our affections for our good God who has given us those good things, right? We've discussed that earlier, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is the giver of every good gift. And, and his desire is that we would love him more than the gifts he gives. Uh, there, there's a point uh, in which our, our children, as they grow, there was a point in my life that uh, I started loving the giver of gifts more than the gifts that I got. When I was younger, I really like, yes, this is the gift I wanted, and I'd just take off. <laughs> Peace out. I'm going to go play with this. Uh, and then there came a point in time where I was like, you know, thank you for the gift, and I, and I really meant the thank you part. And I wanted, to, I wanted to spend time with the person who gave me the gift more than the gift. <laughs> and the promises of God aren't limited to those who are physically poor. That's not what he's advocating here. The promises of God are limited to those who love God, who love God more than the good things in life, the good gifts that God gives, the good things that can become distractions from the most important thing. Again, in Matthew, uh, he tells us that uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And here's, here's the, the truth about that. We're all poor in spirit. <laughs> when we come to the Lord, uh, we all come with the same amount of spiritual righteousness, which is none. <laughs> uh, and Jesus says that that person is blessed. They're not blessed because they have nothing. They're blessed because they know they don't have anything and they know that the Lord does. They know that they are in great need and that God is a great giver. It reminds me of what uh, Jesus wrote to uh, one of the churches in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, there's this church, and their perception of themselves was incorrect. Uh, he writes this about their perception of themselves in contrast to his perception of them. Uh, Revelation 3, 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and in need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In relationship to the Lord, our need to the Lord is the latter and not the former. We are, in relationship to the Lord, when we come to him, it's out of being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus would counsel that church, I counsel you, come to me, buy gold, <laughs> refined in the fire, and clothes that you may not be naked, and, you know, eyes have so that your eyes can be healed, and this was to a community that was known for, like, their eyes have. So he's like, like, you don't have what you think you have, and you're not as together as you think you are. But I've got everything 
that you need. And, and here's, here's the glorious part in all of this. The things that I love uh, the most about when the Lord's speaking to me uh, and when I need to hear in the season I need to hear it is I have a great need to hear those things from the Lord. But my need is not unique to me. <laughs> and God's supply is not limited to me. When God is speaking a word in due season to me, I try to share that word with as many people as possible <laughs> because uh, one uh, pastor described fellowship as two fellows in the same ship. <laughs> and, and if we're going through the same storm together and the Lord gives me a word in due season, I want to share that word with you. And if you're going through something and the Lord gives you a word in due season, I want you to share that word with me. The needs that you have are significant, but they're not unique. The needs that I have are significant, but they're not unique to me. And the Lord's ability to meet those needs uh, are unsurpassable. And so God chooses the poor, and God's choosing of the poor should be encouraging to us when we have a right understanding of ourselves, but it also should impact how we treat one another. When we see somebody coming in, are we seeing somebody who has become wealthy, who has become rich and is in need of nothing? That would be viewing them incorrectly. How God wants us to view ourselves is how he wants us to view one another, is to view one another as those who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and yet the Lord has everything for them. And so when we see somebody in fine apparel and we see somebody in clothes that they've been wearing for the last six months, they have the same need. They need the Lord. <laughs> the greatest need that they have that the Lord can meet that will have impacted their lives 100 years from now, the Lord has for them today. And that's how God sees them. And that's why he's condemning this show of partiality as if somebody's got more of their life together than somebody else. From God's perspective, none of us have anything together. In contrast to God, who honors the poor, fallen man dishonor the poor. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. And that's exactly what the world does. Uh, they dishonor the poor. There, there's no understanding that there's any kind of difference. The things that the world glories in, the Bible specifically tells us not to glory in. Um, uh, in high school, uh, sometimes the people who do sports, they have let letterman jackets. I got one, uh, not because I was some big football player. I used to run laps around the football players. I did uh, cross country and track, and I had a big billboard on the back of my letterman. Uh, and people put all kinds of things, you know, like the school mascot or like different phrases. Um, I had like a block of Bible text. <laughs> and, and this is what the Bible text said. It, it, was, it was Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Uh, it says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. What the world delights in, 
in the time of Jeremiah is no different than now. Uh, money, uh, abilities, and uh, wisdom. Like, go to any bookstore and like, uh, is there anything on these topics? <laughs> the, the people that the world values the most, which one of these do they have in spades? And yet the Lord would say, when he's looking at us, that my ways are higher than your ways. And that if you want to glory in something, it's not in the wisdom, it's not in the power, and it's not uh, in the wealth. It's in knowing and understanding who the Lord is. That he is the one who's going to exercise uh, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Because those are the things in which he delights. Such a different list. And that struggle of Jeremiah's time is the struggle of the time that James wrote his book, and it's the struggle of our time. It's no different. People are the same everywhere around the world and all throughout time. We have, uh, by default, a wrong view of one another because we have wrong standards that we hold. But when we're holding the right standard, we will see that we're all poor, <laughs> that we all need mercy and not judgment. Notice what he says uh, here in the end, verses 8 through 11. He says, Christians express love by showing mercy. Christians express love by showing mercy. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged, notice, by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you know the, the motivation behind showing mercy uh, isn't so that we will receive mercy, but it's because we have already received mercy. Uh, if you recall, there was a parable Jesus gave of an, of an unforgiving servant. Uh, he owed 10,000 talents, and I was like looking up this morning, how much is a talent again? And it said it was 15 years of the average working man's wage. So you do the math, <laughs> like $10 billion or something like that. Some guy owed him like 20 bucks. He was forgiven his $10 billion debt that he would never be able to pay back. Um, and then he goes and finds somebody that owes him barely anything and begins choking him. <laughs> and he's like, I forgave you a bazillion dollars <laughs> and, and you couldn't forgive 20 bucks. It's very difficult to show others mercy when we have not yet comprehended the mercy we've already received. When, when we think that we're rich and have need of nothing, <laughs> it's hard to have compassion on those that we view as poor, blind, miserable, and naked. But when we see ourselves as the poor, blind, miserable, and naked, and we see somebody else, we're like, hey, I got the hookup. <laughs> Jesus is right over here. He's got gold. He's got clothing. <laughs> it's awesome. 
so much easier. That's why, again, I believe he, he was purposeful in his placement of where he put this in the order of things that he covered. Because when you've gone through a trial, it's much easier to have compassion on somebody in the midst of a trial. When you've been tempted, it's much easier to have mercy on somebody who's in the midst of that temptation. When, when you're confronting somebody with the word of God so that they will repent, it's easier for you to do that with uh, humility when you've also struggled through the same. But all of those things, our, our right relationship with one another is downstream from our right relationship with God. That's where it begins. Because that's where God helps us to see ourselves correctly first. Uh, and, and then it's, it makes it very difficult to see ourselves above anybody else. And that's the normal Christian life progression. The Apostle Paul in his life uh, started off by saying, I'm the least of those uh, of the, the 12 apostles when he was writing a letter uh, to the Corinthians. Later on in his life, he's writing a letter to the Ephesians, and he's like, I'm the least of all those who are saved. And at the very end of his life, he's like, I'm the worst sinner I know. <laughs> There's a downward trend there. I'm not sure if you noticed that, but his perspective on himself, the, the, the way he esteemed himself in comparison to other believers uh, was a downward trend. And it's because the, the closer he got to God, uh, the, the clearer his understanding was of how far he had fallen. Uh, the, the, the understanding of God's holiness as it increased in his life, of understanding of God's holiness increased, his understanding of how far from that he was also increased in a downward direction. But every time he describes himself in relationship to others, he also describes the amount of God's grace that he has received. And at the beginning, he's like, God was gracious to me, and he, I, he made me the, you know, the least of 12 apostles. And later on, he's like, God was exceptionally gracious to me and made me you know, the least of all those who are saved. And at the very end, he's like, God was outrageously gracious with me. He had grace upon grace for me, and I'm the chief of sinners. And that distance between our view of ourselves and our view of God, that distance that God takes us, that's our understanding of God's grace in our life. And until we can be where Paul was at, we're always going to look down on someone. Because like, oh, I know God can save me because I'm the least of 12 apostles. <laughs> he saved these other guys too. <laughs> I'm the least of all who are, who've been saved, all of the other believers. You know, he saved all of them and he saved me. And then he's like, I've met all of the sinners and so far I'm the worst one I know. <laughs> but when you're the worst sinner you know, you know something about God's grace for every sinner you meet. And that it's sufficient for them because it was sufficient for you. How are we looking upon one another? Is it with that love? You know, Jesus, uh, when he was asked, what, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember his answer? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and the second, it's like it. <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, uh, normally I have the privilege of teaching the children, and the children are normally really good at asking a question that somebody asked Jesus right after he made that statement. Uh, a pastor friend of mine used to use it as because uh, he was a teacher in one of my classes, and he's like, is this a who is my neighbor question? <laughs> there was somebody in the audience like, yeah, but who's my neighbor? <laughs> I, I, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but who is my neighbor? And I'm really glad that he asked because Jesus gave an answer. Uh, the answer, do you remember? Uh, there's a church here in town. They're named after the answer. <laughs> the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus gave a story uh, that was so outlandish to the people he was telling it to. 
It would be as if I was telling you the same story, except the, the hero of the story uh, was a, a member of the Taliban on the day after 9-11. Like, that's how outlandish it would be for them to hear this story. And then Jesus flipped the question on the guy, and he's like, which one showed love to his neighbor? And the guy couldn't bring himself to say <laughs> the guy's nationality, but do you know how he described it? He said, the one who showed mercy. There's a strong connection between what James is saying here of fulfilling the royal law, of loving your neighbor as yourself, and what he says at the very end of our passage together of showing mercy to one another. Showing mercy is the expression of Christian love. Showing mercy is looking at someone who is poor, blind, naked, <laughs> and bringing to them the good things that they need. And this is exactly what the Lord has done for each one of us. This is what the Lord has for every lost soul, should they desire it. And when we see people from God's view, we will see the same. And we will love our neighbor as ourself. It's important to note, though, in the middle, what he says about this royal law and all of God's laws, really. First, he points out, verse 9, that partiality is sin. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And so you might be like, all right, I'm good. Haven't shown partiality yet today. <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, but then he, he takes us to the place where uh, we ought to be, and that's a full understanding that we fall short. Verse 10, uh, a verse I've often used in, in sharing the gospel with others, uh, of somebody who has got nine out of 10 doing well. Remember Jesus uh, talking to a rich young ruler? He's like, what must, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of, of heaven? And uh, Jesus interacts with him a little bit. And why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Jesus is giving him a hint there. <laughs> uh, and then he's like, what does the law say? And he's like, do this, this, and this. And he's like, well, go and do that. And he's like, I've done all of that. And he's like, well, I've got, I just got one more thing. <laughs> so all that you have, give it to the poor. And the man walked away sad. Uh, but Jesus, in his conversation, when he was telling him these things, uh, the scripture, it, it says something unique. It says that he loved him when he said these things. He was speaking the truth to him. The man went away sad. We don't know if the man actually did it or not. We're not told. Maybe that's why he was going away sad, because he was going to do it. Maybe he went away sad because he was unwilling to do it. We're not sure. But the point that Jesus was making is the point that James makes here in verse 10, is that we all fail to keep the law. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. And I think intuitively we, we know this, if not have experienced this. Uh, one year I was coming home uh, to surprise my parents for um, Thanksgiving, not Thanksgiving, uh, Easter. I was coming home on Easter. I was going to school in Southern California. I was driving up in my, my little black beat-em-up truck which is a stick shift with no cruise control. And it was just, it's 400 miles from doorstep to doorstep. And I was at like mile 300 and my leg was getting a cramp. And I was like, ah. So I was like, I was adjusting myself and I had been intentionally going the speed limit the entire way. I, I, I've had, you know, 320 miles of speed limit. And as I was, I was adjusting myself, I looked down and I'm like, oh man, I'm going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And then I look up 
and there's nobody anywhere except for the highway patrol officer right behind me. <laughs> and you know, I may have kept the law <laughs> the entire way <laughs> and yet stumbled in one point, and that law enforcement officer cares not <laughs> about all of the obedience that I had expressed up to that point. It did not weigh anything on the scales of justice. And we understand this, right? We, we understand that if, it doesn't matter if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, then you're a transgressor of the law. You've broken the rules. And here's the deal. We're all rule breakers. That's his point when he's saying all of that. He's like, here's the royal law. Also, you don't keep it. It's what we're supposed to do. But it's, none of us can do that apart from the Lord doing the work in us and through us. And he wants us to be very comfortable with knowing that we need grace. We need mercy. We need his grace to be upon grace, and we need his mercies to be new every morning. And that, that significant need that we have is not unique to us. And when we view others, we should be viewing others not as those who have it together and we push them up, or as those whose lives are a complete wreck, especially compared to our, our own, you know, Lord, if they would just do what I did, don't ask me how these, I know about these thoughts, just, just know that I know them. We're comparing ourselves amongst ourselves, and Jesus says, that's foolish. The standard is perfection. We all fail that standard. We all need mercy. How are to look upon one another is with eyes full of mercy and hearts full of God's love. Micah 6.8, we're told, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to invite the worship team back up and close this in a word of prayer, but I would ask that each one of us would consider uh, our own need for the Lord this morning, and then consider one another uh, with regard to their need for the Lord. We can easily come to church and think about somebody else who should have heard this sermon. And yet I would, with uh, James, say each one of you, listen, uh, this is for us. It's not for the world out there, but this is for us and how we look upon one another that we would see one another and value one another according to how God sees and values each one of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, examine the contents of our heart. Lord, help us to know our need for you afresh. Lord, help us to appreciate uh, the supply that you give to us afresh. In our relationship with you, we needed mercy to triumph over judgment because we fail to keep the whole law. We stumble at many points. Lord, I pray that you would transform the way we view one another. Lord, that we would be excited about the grace and mercy that you're uh, expressing in our own life and that we would be as excited about the grace and mercy uh, that you're expressing in the lives of those who are sitting in this room around us. Lord, by your spirit, I pray for each one here, Lord, that your love would fill and overflow our heart, Lord, and that it would be expressed in how uh, we show mercy to one another. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who does not know you, 
who has never experienced their, uh, the mercy and grace which I've been talking about this morning. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave this place without knowing you, without experiencing that love and that grace. Lord, because even as they are, so I was, poor, blind, and naked. And yet, Lord, you have gold refined in the fire. You have clothes by which we may be clothed. Lord, you have chosen us because we are poor and because we love you. Lord, we thank you for you. In Jesus' name we pray.